0: Book two, chapter twenty-eight of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book two, riches, chapter twenty-eight, an appearance in the Marshalsea. The opinion of the community outside the prison gates bore hard on Clennam as time went on, and he made no friends among the community within too depressed to associate with the herd in the yard, who got together to forget their cares, too retiring and too unhappy to join in the poor socialities of the tavern, he kept his own room, and was held in distrust. Some said he was proud, some objected that he was sullen and reserved, some were contemptuous of him, for that he was a poor-spirited dog, who pined under his debts. The whole population were shy of him on these various counts of indictment, but especially the last which involved a species of domestic treason, and he soon became so confirmed in his seclusion, that his only time for walking up and down was when the evening club were assembled at their songs and toasts and sentiments, and when the yard was nearly left to the women and children. Imprisonment began to tell upon him. He knew that he idled and moped. After what he had known of the influences of imprisonment within the four small walls of the very room he occupied, this consciousness made him afraid of himself shrinking from the observation of other men, and shrinking from his own, he began to change very sensibly. Anybody might see that the shadow of the wall was dark upon him. One day, when he might have been some ten or twelve weeks in jail, and when he had been trying to read, and had not been able to release even the imaginary people of the book from the marshalsea, a footstep stopped at his door, and a hand tapped at it. He arose and opened it, and an agreeable voice accosted him with, how do you do, Mr. Clennam? I hope I'm not unwelcome in calling to see you. It was the sprightly young barnacle Ferdinand. He looked very good-natured and prepossessing, though overpoweringly gay and free, in contrast with the squalid prison. You're surprised to see me, Mr. Clennam, he said, taking the seat which Clennam offered him. I must confess to being much surprised. Not disagreeably, I hope? By no means. "'Thank you.' "'Frankly,' said the engaging young Barnacle, "'I have been excessively sorry to hear that you are under the necessity of temporary retirement here, and I hope, of course as between two private gentlemen, that our place has had nothing to do with it. "'Your office?' "'Our circumlocution place.' "'I cannot charge any part of my reverses upon that remarkable establishment.' "'Upon my life,' said the vivacious young Barnacle, "'I am heartily glad to know it. "'It is quite a relief to me to hear you say it. "'I should have so exceedingly regretted "'our place having had anything to do with your difficulties.' Clennam again assured him "'that he absolved it of the responsibility. "'That's right,' said Ferdinand. "'I am very happy to hear it. "'I was rather afraid in my own mind "'that we might have helped to floor you, "'because there is no doubt "'that it is our misfortune to do that kind of thing now and then. "'We don't want to do it, "'but if men will be gravelled, why, we can't help it.' "'Without giving an unqualified assent to what you say,' returned Arthur gloomily, "'I am much obliged to you for your interest in me.' "'No, but really, our place is,' said the easy young barnacle, "'the most inoffensive place possible. "'You'll say we are a humbug. "'I won't say we are not. "'But all that sort of thing is intended to be, and must be. "'Don't you see?' "'I do not,' said Clennam. "'You don't regard it from the right point of view.' "'It is the point of view that it is the essential thing. "'Regard our place from the point of view that we only ask you to leave us alone, "'and we are as capital a department as you'll find anywhere.' "'Is your place there to be left alone?' asked Clennam. "'You exactly hit it,' returned Ferdinand. "'It is there, with the express intention, that everything shall be left alone. "'That is what it means. "'That is what it's for.' "'No doubt there's a certain form to be kept up, that it's for something else, but it's only a form. Why, good heaven, we are nothing but forms. Think what a lot of our forms you have gone through, and you have never got any nearer to an end.' "'Never,' said Clennam. "'Look at it from the right point of view, and there you have us, official and effectual. It's like a limited game of cricket.' A field of outsiders are always going in to bowl at the public service, and we block the balls. Clennam asked what became of the bowlers. The airy young barnacle replied that they grew tired, got dead beat, got lamed, got their backs broken, died off, gave it up, went in for other games. "'And this occasions me to congratulate myself again,' he pursued on the circumstance that our place has had nothing to do with your temporary retirement it very easily might have had a hand in it because it is undeniable that we are sometimes a most unlucky place in our effects upon people who will not leave us alone mr clennam i am quite unreserved with you as between yourself and myself i know i may be i was so when i first saw you making the mistake of not leaving us alone because I perceived that you were inexperienced and sanguine, and had, I hope you'll not object to my saying, some simplicity?" "'Not at all. Some simplicity. Therefore I felt, what a pity it was, and I went out of my way to hint to you—which really was not official, but I never am official when I can help it—something to the effect that, if I were you, I wouldn't bother myself. However, you did bother yourself, and you have since bothered yourself now don't do it any more i am not likely to have the opportunity said clennam oh yes you are you leave here everybody leaves here there are no ends of ways of leaving here now don't come back to us that entreaty is the second object of my call pray don't come back to us upon my honor said ferdinand in a very friendly and confiding way I shall be greatly vexed, if you don't take warning by the past, and keep away from us.' "'And the invention?' said Clennam. "'My good fellow,' returned Ferdinand, "'if you'll excuse the freedom of that form of address. Nobody wants to know of the invention, and nobody cares tuppence me about it.' "'Nobody in the office, that is to say.' "'Nor out of it. Everybody is ready to dislike and ridicule any invention.' You have no idea how many people want to be left alone. You have no idea how the genius of the country—overlook the parliamentary nature of the phrase, and don't be bored by it—tends to being left alone. Believe me, Mr. Clennam," said the sprightly young barnacle, in his pleasantest manner, "'our place is not a wicked giant, to be charged at full tilt, but only a windmill showing you, as it grinds immense quantities of chaff, which way the country wind blows.' "'If I could believe that,' said Plenham, "'it would be a dismal prospect for all of us.' "'Oh, don't say so,' returned Ferdinand. "'It's all right. We must have humbug. We all like humbug. We couldn't get on without humbug. A little humbug, and a groove, and everything goes on admirably, if you leave it alone.' With this hopeful confession of his faith, as the head of the rising barnacles, who were born a woman, to be followed under a variety of watchwords which they utterly repudiated and disbelieved, Ferdinand rose. Nothing could be more agreeable than his frank and courteous bearing, or adapted with a more gentlemanly instinct to the circumstances of his visit. "'Is it fair to ask,' he said, as Clennam gave him his hand with a real feeling of thankfulness for his candour and good humour, "'whether it is true that our late lamented Myrtle is the cause of this passing inconvenience?' I am one of the many he has ruined, yes. He must have been an exceedingly clever fellow, said Ferdinand Barnacle. Arthur, not being in the mood to extol the memory of the deceased, was silent. A consummate rascal, of course, said Ferdinand, but remarkably clever. One cannot help admiring the fellow. Must have been such a master of humbug. Knew people so well, got over them so completely, did so much with them. In his easy way, he was really moved to genuine admiration i hope said arthur that he and his dupes may be a warning to people not to have so much done with them again my dear mr cledham returned ferdinand laughing have you really such a verdant hope the next man who has as large a capacity and as genuine a taste for swindling will succeed as well pardon me but I think you really have no idea how the human bees will swarm to the beating of any old tin kettle. In that fact lies the complete manual of governing them. When they can be got to believe that the kettle is made of the precious metals, in that fact lies the whole power of men, like our late lamented. No doubt there are here and there said Ferdinand politely, exceptional cases, where people have been taken in for what appeared to them to be much better reasons, and I need not go far to find such a case. But they don't invalidate the rule. Good day. I hope that when I have the pleasure of seeing you, next, this passing cloud will have given place to sunshine. Don't come a step beyond the door. I know the way out perfectly. Good day." With those words, the best and brightest of the barnacles, went downstairs, hummed his way through the lodge, mounted his horse in the front courtyard, and rode off to keep an appointment with his noble kinsman, who wanted a little coaching before he could triumphantly answer certain infidel snobs, who were going to question the knobs, about their statesmanship. He must have passed Mr. Rugg on his way out, for a minute or two afterwards, that ruddy-headed gentleman shone in at the door like an elderly Phoebus. "'How?' "'Do you do to-day, sir?' said Mr. Rugg. "'Is there any little thing I can do for you to-day, sir?' "'No, I thank you.' Mr. Rugg's enjoyment of embarrassed affairs was like a housekeeper's enjoyment in pickling and preserving, or a washerwoman's enjoyment of a heavy wash, or a dustman's enjoyment of an overflowing dustbin, or any other professional enjoyment of a mess in the way of business. "'I still look round.' "'from time to time, sir,' said Mr. Rugg, cheerfully, "'to see whether any lingering detainers are accumulating at the gate. "'They have fallen in pretty thick, sir, as thick as we could have expected.' He remarked upon the circumstance as if it were a matter of congratulation, rubbing his hands briskly, and rolling his head a little. "'As thick,' repeated Mr. Rugg, "'as we could reasonably have expected. "'Quite a shower-bath of them.' I don't often intrude upon you now, when I look round, because I know you are not inclined for company, and that if you wished to see me, you would leave word in the lodge. But I am here pretty well every day, sir. Would this be an unseasonable time, sir? asked Mr. Rugg, coaxingly, for me to offer an observation. As seasonable a time as any other. Hm Public opinion, sir said Mr. Rugg, has been busy with you. "'I don't doubt it.' "'Might it not be advisable, sir?' said Mr. Rugg, more coaxingly yet. "'Now, to make, at last and after all, a trifling concession to public opinion? "'We all do it, in one way or another. "'The fact is, we must do it.' "'I cannot set myself right with it, Mr. Rugg, "'and have no business to expect that I ever shall.' "'Don't say that, sir. Don't say that. The cost of being moved to the bench is almost insignificant. And if the general feeling is strong that you ought to be there, why, really—' "'I thought you had settled, Mr. Rugg,' said Arthur, that my determination to remain here was a matter of taste. "'Well, sir, well. But is it good taste? Is it good taste? That's the question.' Mr. Rugg was so soothingly persuasive, as to be quite pathetic. "'I was almost going to say, is it good feeling? This is an extensive affair of yours, and your remaining here, where a man can come for a pound or two, is remarked upon as not in keeping.' "'It is not in keeping. I can't tell you, sir, in how many quarters I heard it mentioned. I heard comments made upon it last night, in a parlour, frequented by what I should call, if I did not look in there now and then myself, the best legal company, I heard there comments on it that I was sorry to hear. They hurt me, on your account. Again, only this morning at breakfast. My daughter, but a woman, you'll say, yet still with a feeling for these things, and even with some little personal experience, as the plaintiff in Rug and Borkins, was expressing a great surprise, her great surprise—her great surprise. Now, under these circumstances, and considering that none of us can quite set ourselves above public opinion, wouldn't a trifling concession to that opinion be—' "'Come, sir,' said Rugg, "'I will put it on the lowest ground of argument, and say, amiable?' Arthur's thoughts had once more wandered away to Little Dorrit, and the question remained unanswered as to myself sir said mr rugg hoping that his eloquence had reduced him to a state of indecision it is a principle of mine not to consider myself when a client's inclinations are in the scale but knowing your considerate character and general wish to oblige i will repeat that i should prefer your being in the bench your case has made a noise it is a creditable case to be professionally concerned in I should feel on a better standing with my connection, if you went to the bench. Don't let that influence you, sir. I merely state the fact." So errant had the prisoner's attention already grown in solitude and dejection, and so accustomed had it become to commune with only one silent figure within the ever-frowning walls, that Clennam had to shake off a kind of stupor before he could look at Mr. Rugg, recall the thread of his talk, and hurriedly say, "'I am unchanged and unchangeable in my decision. "'Pray let it be, let it be.' "'Mr. Rugg, without concealing that he was nettled and mortified, replied, "'Oh, beyond a doubt, sir. "'I have travelled out of the record, sir. "'I am aware, in putting the point to you. "'But really, when I heard it remarked in several companies, "'and in very good company, that however worthy of a foreigner, "'he is not worthy of the spirit of an Englishman to remain in the marshalsea, "'when the glorious liberties of his island home admit of his removal to the bench. "'I thought I would depart from the narrow professional line marked out to me, and mention it.' "'Personally,' said Mr. Rugg, "'I have no opinion on the topic.' "'That's well,' returned Arthur. "'Oh, none at all, sir,' said Mr. Rugg. "'If I had, I should have been unwilling, some minutes ago.' to see a client of mine visited in this place by a gentleman of a high family riding a saddle-horse. But it was not my business. If I had, I might have wished to be now empowered to mention to another gentleman, a gentleman of military exterior, at present waiting in the lodge, that my client had never intended to remain here, and was on the eve of removal to a superior abode. But my course, as a professional machine, is clear. I have nothing to do with it. Is it your good pleasure to see the gentleman, sir?" "'Who is waiting to see me, did you say?' "'I did take that unprofessional liberty, sir, hearing that I was your professional adviser. He declined to interpose before my very limited function was performed. Happily,' said Mr. Rugg, with sarcasm, I did not so far travel out of the record as to ask the gentleman for his name." "'I suppose I have no resource but to see him,' sighed Clennam, wearily. "'Then it is your good pleasure, sir,' retorted Rugg. "'Am I honoured by your instructions to mention as much to the gentleman as I pass out?' "'I am. Thank you, sir. I take my leave.' His leave he took accordingly in dudgeon. The gentleman of military exterior had so imperfectly awakened Clennam's curiosity, in the existing state of his mind, that a half-forgetfulness of such a visitor's having been referred to was already creeping over it, as a part of the sombre veil, which almost always dimmed it now, when a heavy footstep on the stairs aroused him. It appeared to ascend them, not very promptly or spontaneously, yet with a display of stride and clatter meant to be insulting. As it paused for a moment on the landing outside his door, he could not recall his association with the peculiarity of its sound, though he thought he had one. Only a moment was given him for consideration. His door was immediately swung open by a thump, and in the doorway stood the missing blandois, the cause of many anxieties. "'Solve, fellow Gilbert,' said he. "'You want me, it seems. Here I am.' Before Arthur could speak to him, in his indignant wonder, Cavaletto followed him into the room. Mr. Pancks followed Cavaletto. Neither of the two had been there since its present occupant had had possession of it, Mr. Pancks, breathing hard, sidled near the window, put his hat on the ground, stirred his hair up with both hands, and folded his arms, like a man who had come to a pause in a hard day's work. Mr. Baptist, never taking his eyes from his dreaded chum of old, softly sat down on the floor, with his back against the door, and one of his ankles in each hand, resuming the attitude, except that it was now expressive of unwinking watchfulness, in which he had sat before the same man in the deeper shade of another prison, one hot morning at Marseilles. "'I have on the witnessing of these two madmen,' said Monsieur Blandois, otherwise Lannier, otherwise Rigaud, that you want me, brother Bird. Here I am.' Glancing round contemptuously at the bedstead, which was turned up by day, he leaned his back against it as a resting-place, without removing his hat from his head, and stood defiantly lounging with his hands in his pockets you villain of ill omen said arthur you have purposely cast a dreadful suspicion upon my mother's house why have you done it what prompted you to the devilish invention m rigaud after frowning at him for a moment laughed here is noble gentleman listen all the world to this creature of virtue but take care take care it is possible, my friend, that your ardour is a little compromising. Holy blue! It is possible. Signore, interposed Cavaletto, also addressing Arthur, for to commence, hear me. I received your instructions to find him, rigaud, is it not? It is the truth. I go, consequently It would have given Mrs. Plornish great concern, "'if she could have been persuaded that his occasional lengthening of an adverb in this way was the chief fault of his English. first among my countrymen, I ask them what news in Londra of foreigners arrived. "'Then I go among the French. "'Then I go among the Germans. "'They all tell me. "'The great part of us know well the other, and they all tell me. "'But no person can tell me nothing of him, rigaud, fifteen times.' said Cavaletto, thrice throwing out his left hand, with all its fingers spread, and doing it so rapidly that the sense of sight could hardly follow the action. "'I ask of him, in every place, where go the foreigners, and fifteen times,' repeating the same swift performance, "'they know nothing, but—' At this significant Italian rest on the word, but, his back-handed shake of his right forefinger came into play, a very little— and very cautiously, but, after a long time, when I have not been able to find that he is here, in Lundra, some one tells me of a soldier, with white hair, eh, not hair like this, that he carries, white, who lives retired secretamentally, in a certain place, but, with another rest upon the word, who sometimes, in the after-dinner, walks, and smokes, It is necessary, as they say in Italy, and as they know, poor people, to have patience. I have patience. I ask, where is this certain place? One believes it is here, one believes it is there. Eh, well, it is not here, it is not there. I wait patiently, mentally. At last I find it, then I watch, then I hide, until he walks and smokes. He is a soldier, with grey hair, but— a very decided rest, indeed, and a very vigorous play from side to side of the back-handed forefinger. He is also this man that you see. It was noticeable that, in his old habit of submission to one who had been at the trouble of asserting superiority over him, he even then bestowed upon Rigaud a confused bend of his head, after thus pointing him out. "'Eh well, signore,' he cried in conclusion, addressing Arthur again, I wait for a good opportunity. I righted some words to Signor Panco. An air of novelty came over Mr. Pancks with this designation, to come and help. I showed him rigore, at his window, to Signor Panco, who was often the spy in the day. I slept at night, near the door of the house. At last we entered, only this to-day, and now you see him. As he would not come up in presence of the illustrious Advocate, such was Mr. Baptist's honourable mention of Mr. Rugg. We waited down below there, together, and Signor Panco guarded the street." At the close of this recital, Arthur turned his eyes upon the impudent and wicked face. As it met his, the nose came down over the moustache, and the moustache went up under the nose. When nose and moustache had settled into their places again, Monsieur Rigaud loudly snapped his fingers half a dozen times bending forward to jerk the snaps at Arthur, as if they were palpable missiles, which he jerked into his face. "'Now, philosopher,' said Rigaud, "'what do you want with me?' "'I want to know,' returned Arthur, without disguising his abhorrence, "'how you dare direct a suspicion of murder against my mother's house.' "'Dare?' cried Rigaud. Ho, 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 Hear him! There! Is it there? By heaven, my small boy! But you are a little imprudent!" "'I want that suspicion to be cleared away,' said Arthur. "'You shall be taken there, and be publicly seen. I want to know, moreover, what business you had there, when I had a burning desire to fling you downstairs. Don't frown at me, man. I have seen enough of you to know that you are a bully and a coward. I need no revival of my spirits from the effects of this wretched place, to tell you so plain a fact, and one that you know so well." White to the lips, Rigaud stroked his moustache, muttering, "'By heaven, my small boy, but you are a little compromising of my lady, your respectable mother,' and seemed for a minute undecided how to act. His indecision was soon gone. He sat himself down with a threatening swagger, and said, "'Give me a bottle of wine. You can buy wine here. Send one of your madmen to get me a bottle of wine. I won't talk to you without wine. Come, yes or no.' Fetch him what he wants, Cavalletto," said Arthur scornfully, producing the money. "Contraband beast,' added Rigaud. "'Bring port wine. I will drink nothing but porto-porto.' The contraband beast, however, assuring all present with a significant finger that he peremptorily declined to leave his post at the door, Signor Panco offered his services. He soon returned with a bottle of wine, which, according to the custom of the place, originating in a scarcity of corkscrews among the collegians in common with a scarcity of much else, was already open for use. Madman, a large glass said Rigaud, Signor Panco put a tumbler before him not without a visible conflict of feeling on the question of throwing it at his head. Ha! 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 boasted Rigaud, once a gentleman, and always a gentleman, a gentleman from the beginning, and a gentleman to the end. What the devil! A gentleman must be waited on, I hope. It's a part of my character to be waited on. He half-filled the tumbler as he said it, and drank off the contents, when he had done saying it. ha! smacking his lips. Not a very old prisoner, that. I judge by your looks, brave sir, that imprisonment will subdue your blood much sooner than it softens this hot wine. You are mellowing, losing body and colour already. I salute you. He tossed off another glass, holding it up, both before and afterwards, so as to display his small white hand. To business, he then continued to conversation you have shown yourself more free of speech than body sir i have used the freedom of telling you what you know yourself to be you know yourself as we all know you to be far worse than that add always a gentleman and it's no matter except in that regard we are all alike for example you couldn't for your life be a gentleman I couldn't for my life be otherwise. How great the difference! Let us go on. Words, sir, never influence the course of the cards, or the course of the dice. Do you know that? You do? I also play a game, and words are without power over it.' Now that he was confronted with Cavaletto, and knew that his story was known, whatever thin disguise he had worn, he dropped, and faced it out with a bare face, as the infamous wretch he was. "'No, my son,' he resumed with a snap of his fingers, "'I play my game to the end, in spite of words, and death of my body, and death of my soul. I'll win it. You want to know why I play this little trick, that you have interrupted? Know, then, that I had, and that I have—do you understand me? Have a commodity?' to sell to my lady, your respectable mother. I described my precious commodity, and fixed my price. Touching the bargain, your admirable mother was a little too calm, too stolid, too immovable, and statue-like. In fine, your admirable mother vexed me. To make variety in my position, and to amuse myself—what, a gentleman must be amused at somebody's expense—I conceived the happy idea of disappearing. an idea, see you, that your characteristic mother and my flint-winch would have been well enough pleased to execute. Ah! Bah! 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 Don't look us from high to low at me. I repeat it. "'Well enough, pleased, excessively enchanted, and with all their arts ravaged. How strongly will you have it?' He threw out the leaves of his glass on the ground, so that they nearly spattered Cavaletto. This seemed to draw his attention to him anew. He set down his glass, and said, "'I'll not fill it.' "'What? I am born to be served. Come, then, you, Cavaletto, and fill.' The little man looked at Clennam, whose eyes were occupied with rigour, and, seeing no prohibition, got up from the ground, and poured out from the bottle into the glass. The blending, as he did so, of his old submission, with a sense of something humorous, the striving of that with a certain smouldering ferocity, which might have flashed fire in an instant, as the born gentleman seemed to think, for he had a wary eye upon him, and the easy yielding of all to a good-natured. Careless predominant propensity to sit down on the ground again formed a very remarkable combination of character. This happy idea, brave sir, Rigaud resumed after drinking, was a happy idea for several reasons. It amused me, it worried your dear mamma and my flint winch. It caused you agonies. My term is for a lesson in politeness towards a gentleman and he suggested to all the amiable persons interested that your entirely devoted is a man to fear. By heaven, he is a man to fear! Beyond this, it might have restored her wit to my lady, your mother, might, under the pressing little suspicion your wisdom has recognised, have persuaded her at last to announce, covertly, in the journals, that the difficulties of a certain contract would be removed, by the appearance of a certain important party to it. Perhaps, yes, perhaps, no. But that you have interrupted. Now, what is it you say? What is it you want?' Never had Clennam felt more acutely that he was a prisoner in bonds, than when he saw this man before him, and could not accompany him to his mother's house. All the undiscernible difficulties and dangers he had ever feared were closing in, when he could not stir hand or foot. "'Perhaps, my friend, philosopher, man of virtue, imbecile, what you will, perhaps,' said Rigaud, pausing in his drink, to look out of his glass, with his horrible smile. "'You would have done better to leave me alone.' "'Now, at least,' said Clennam. "'You are known to be alive and unharmed. "'At least you cannot escape from these two witnesses, "'and they can produce you before any public authorities, "'or before hundreds of people.' "'But will not produce me before one?' "'said Rigaud, snapping his fingers again "'with an air of triumphant menace. "'To the devil with your witnesses! "'To the devil with your produced! "'To the devil with yourself! "'What, do I know what I know for that?' "'Have I my commodity on sale for that? (laughs) Ha! poor debtor! "'You have interrupted my little project. "'Let it pass. "'How, then? "'What remains? "'To you, nothing. "'To me, all. "'Produce me. "'Is that what you want? "'I will produce myself, only too quickly. "'Contrabandist! "'Give me pen, ink, and paper.' Cavaletto got up again as before and laid them before him in his former manner. Rigaud, after some villainous thinking and smiling, wrote, and read aloud as follows, "'To Mrs. Glenham.' "'Wait, answer.' "'Prison of the Marshalsea, at the apartment of your son. "'Dear Madame, I am in despair to be informed to-day by our prisoner here has had the goodness to employ spies to seek me living for politic reasons in retirement that you have had fears for my safety reassure yourself dear madame i am well i am strong and constant with the greatest impatience i should fly to your house but that i foresee it to be possible under the circumstances that you will not yet have quite definitely arranged the little proposition I have had the honour to submit to you. I name one week from this day, for a last final visit on my part, when you will unconditionally accept it, or reject it, with its train of consequences. I suppress my ardour to embrace you, and achieve this interesting business in order that you may have leisure to adjust its details to our perfect mutual satisfaction. In the meanwhile, it is not too much to propose, our prisoner having deranged my housekeeping, that my expenses of lodging and nourishment at an hotel shall be paid by you. Receive, dear madam, the assurance of my highest and most distinguished consideration. "'Rigaud Blandois. "'A thousand friendships to that dear Flintwinch. "'I kiss the hands of Madame F.' "'When he had finished this epistle, "'Rigaud folded it, and tossed it with a flourish at Clennam's feet. "'Hola, you! "'Apropos of producing, "'let somebody produce that at its address, "'and produce the answer here.' "'Cavaletta,' said Arthur, "'Will you take this fellow's letter?' But Cavaletto's significant finger, again expressing that his post was at the door, to keep watch over Rigaud, now he had found him with so much trouble, and that the duty of his post was to sit on the floor, backed up by the door, looking at Rigaud and holding his own ankles, Signor Panco once more volunteered. His services being accepted, Cavaletto suffered the door to open barely wide enough to admit of his squeezing himself out, and immediately shut it on him. "'Touch me with a finger, touch me with an epithet, question my superiority, as I sit here, drinking my wine at my pleasure,' said Rigaud, "'and I follow the letter, and cancel my week's grace. You wanted me? You have got me. How do you like me?' "'You know,' returned Clennam, with a bitter sense of his helplessness, "'that when I sought you, I was not a prisoner.' to the devil with you and your prison!" retorted Rigaud, leisurely, as he took from his pocket a case containing the materials for making cigarettes, and employed his facile hands in folding a few for present use. "'I care for neither of you—contrabandist—a light!' Again Cavaletto got up, and gave him what he wanted. There had been something dreadful in the noiseless skill of his cold, white hands, with the fingers lithely twisting about, and twining one over another like serpents. Tlenham could not prevent himself from shuddering inwardly, as if he had been looking on at a nest of those creatures. "'Hola, pig!' cried Rigaud, with a noisy stimulating cry, as if Cavaletto were an Italian horse or mule. "'What! The infernal old jail was a respectable one to this! There was dignity in the bars and stones of that place! "'It was a prison for men, but this, bah, a hospital for imbeciles!' He smoked his cigarette out, with his ugly smile so fixed upon his face, that he looked as though he were smoking with his drooping beak of a nose, rather than with his mouth, like a fancy in a weird picture. When he had lighted a second cigarette at the still-burning end of the first, he said to Clennam, "'One must pass the time in the madman's absence.' One must talk. One can't drink strong wine all day long, or I would have another bottle. She is handsome, sir, though not exactly to my taste. Still, by the thunder and lightning, handsome. I felicitate you and your admiration. I neither know nor ask, said Clennam. of whom you speak. Della bella Gawana, sir, as they say in Italy. "'Of the Gowan, the fair Gowan, of whose husband you were the follower, I think?' "'Sir, follower, you are insolent, the friend.' "'Do you sell all your friends?' Rigaud took his cigarette from his mouth, and eyed him with a momentary revelation of surprise, but he put it between his lips again, as he answered with coolness, "'I sell anything that commands a price. How do your lawyers live?' "'Your politicians, your intriguers, your men of the exchange. "'How do you live? "'How do you come here? "'Have you sold no friend? "'Lady of mine, I rather think yes.' Clennam turned away from him towards the window, "'and sat looking out at the wall. "'Effectively, sir,' said Rigaud, "'society sells itself, and sells me, and I sell society.' "'I perceive you have acquaintance with another lady, also handsome, a strong spirit. Let us see. How do they call her? Wade?' He received no answer, but could easily discern that he had hit the mark. "'Yes,' he went on, "'that handsome lady and strong spirit addresses me in the street. I am not insensible. I respond.' That handsome lady, and strong spirit, does me the favour to remark, in full confidence. I have my curiosity, and I have my chagrins. You are not more than ordinarily honourable, perhaps. I announce myself, madame, a gentleman from the birth, and a gentleman to the death, but not more than ordinarily honourable. I despise such a weak fancy. Thereupon she is pleased to compliment. The difference between you and the rest is, she answers, that you say so, for she knows society. I accept her congratulations with gallantry and politeness. Politeness and little gallantries are inseparable from my character. She then makes a proposition which is, in effect, that she has seen us much together, that it appears to her that I am, for the passing time, the cat of the house, the friend of the family that her curiosity and her chagrins awaken the fancy to be acquainted with their movements to know the manner of their life how the fair Gowana is beloved how the fair Gowana is cherished and so on she is not rich, but offers such, and such little recompenses for the little cares and derangements of such services, and I graciously, to do everything graciously, is a part of my character, consent to accept them. Oh, yes, so goes the world. It is the mode. Though Clennam's back was turned while he spoke, and thenceforth to the end of the interview, he kept those glittering eyes of his, that were too near together, upon him, and evidently saw in the very carriage of the head, as he passed with his braggart recklessness from clause to clause of what he said, that he was saying nothing which Clennam did not already know. Phew, the fair Gowana, he said, lighting a third cigarette with a sound as if his lightest breath could blow her away, charming, but imprudent for it was not well of the fair gowanna to make mysteries of letters from old lovers in her bedchamber on the mountain that her husband might not see them no no that was not well hoo hoo the gowanna was mistaken there i earnestly hope cried arthur aloud that Hanks may not be long gone for this man's presence pollutes the room ah "'But he'll flourish here and everywhere,' said Rigaud, with an exulting look and snap of his fingers. "'He always has, he always will.' Stretching his body out, on the only three chairs in the room besides that on which Clennam sat, he sang, smiting himself on the breast, as the gallant personage of the song—' Who passes by these roads so late, compagnon de la majolaine? Who passes by these roads so late, always gay? Sing the refrain, pig. You could sing it once in another jail. Sing it, or by every saint who was stoned to death I'll be affronted and compromising, and then some people who are not dead yet had better have been stoned along with them of all the king's knights dizzy flower compagnon de la majolin of all the king's knights tis flower always gay partly in his old habit of submission partly because his not doing it might injure his benefactor and partly because he would as soon do it as anything else cavalletto took up the refrain this time rigaud laughed and fell to smoking with his eyes shut Possibly another quarter of an hour elapsed before Mr. Pank's step was heard upon the stairs, but the interval seemed to Clennam insupportably long. His step was attended by another step, and when Cavaletto opened the door, he admitted Mr. Pank's, and Mr. Flintwinch. The latter was no sooner visible than Rigaud rushed at him, and embraced him boisterously. "'How do you find yourself, sir?' said Mr. Flintwinch, as soon as he could disengage himself, which he struggled to do with very little ceremony. "'Thank you. No, I don't want any more.' This was in reference to another menace of attention from his recovered friend. "'Well, Arthur, you remember what I said to you about sleeping dogs and missing ones? It's come true, you see.' He was as imperturbable as ever to all appearance, and nodded his head in a moralising way as he looked round the room. "'And this is the Marshalsea prison for debt,' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'Ha! <laughs> ha! you have brought your pigs to a very indifferent market, Arthur.' If Arthur had patience, Rigaud had not. He took his little Flintwinch, with fierce playfulness, by the two lapels of his coat, and cried, "'To the devil with the market, to the devil with the pigs, and to the devil with the pig-driver! Now, give me the answer to my letter!' "'If you can make it convenient to let go a moment, sir,' returned Mr. Flintwinch, "'I'll first hand, Mr. Arthur, a little note that I have for him.' He did so. It was in his mother's maimed writing on a slip of paper, and contained only these words. "'I hope it is enough that you have ruined yourself. Rest contented without more ruin. Jeremiah Flintwinch is my messenger and representative. Your affectionate M.C.' Clennam read this twice in silence, and then tore it to pieces. Rigaud, in the meanwhile, stepped into a chair, and sat himself on the back with his feet upon the seat. "'Now, beau Flintwinch,' he said, when he had closely watched the note to its destruction, "'the answer to my letter.' "'Mrs. Clennam did not write, Mr. Blandois, her hands being cramped, and she thinking it as well to send it verbally by me.' Mr. Flintwinch screwed this out of himself unwillingly and rustily. "'She sends her compliments, and says she doesn't, on the whole, wish to term you unreasonable, and that she agrees, but without prejudicing the appointment that stands for this day week.' Monsieur Rigaud, after indulging in a fit of laughter, descended from his throne, saying, "'Good! I go to seek an hôtel!' But there his eyes encountered Cavaletto, who was still at his post. "'Come, pig,' he added, "'I have had you for a follower against my will. Now I'll have you against yours. I tell you, my little reptiles, I am born to be served. I demand the service of this contrabandist as my domestic until this day week.' In answer to Cavaletto's look of inquiry, Clennam made him a sign to go. But he added aloud, "'unless you are afraid of him,' Cavaletto replied with a very emphatic finger-negative. "'No, master, I am not afraid of him, when I no more keep it secret mentally, that he was once my comrade.' Rigaud took no notice of either remark, until he had lighted his last cigarette, and was quite ready for walking. "'Afraid of him?' he said then, looking round upon them all. Phew! my children my babies my little dolls you are all afraid of him you give him his bottle of wine here you give him meat drink and lodging there you dare not touch him with a finger or an epithet no it is his character to triumph of all the king's knights is the flower and is always gay with this adaptation of the refrain to himself, he stalked out of the room, closely followed by Cavaletto, whom perhaps he had pressed into his service, because he tolerably well knew it would not be easy to get rid of him. Mr. Flintwinch, after scraping his chin, and looking about with caustic disparagement of the pig-market, nodded to Arthur, and followed. Mr. Pancks, still penitent and depressed, followed too. After receiving with great attention a secret word or two of instructions from Arthur, and whispering back that he would see this affair out, and stand by it to the end. The prisoner, with the feeling that he was more despised, more scorned and repudiated, more helpless, altogether more miserable and fallen than before, was left alone again. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty-Eight Book two, chapter twenty-nine of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book two, riches, chapter twenty-nine, a plea in the Marshalsea. Haggard anxiety and remorse are bad companions to be barred up with, brooding all day and resting very little indeed at night it will not arm a man against misery. Next morning, Clennam felt that his health was sinking, as his spirits had already sunk, and that the weight under which he bent was bearing him down. Night after night, he had risen from his bed of wretchedness at twelve or one o'clock, and had sat at his window, watching the sickly lamps in the yard, and looking upward for the first one trace of day, hours before it was possible that the sky could show it to him. Now, when the night came, He could not even persuade himself to undress for a burning restlessness set in an agonized impatience of the prison and a conviction that he was going to break his heart and die there which caused him indescribable suffering his dread and hatred of the place became so intense that he felt it a labor to draw his breath in it the sensation of being stifled sometimes so overpowered him that he would stand at the window holding his throat and gasping at the same time a longing for other air, and a yearning to be beyond the blind blank wall, made him feel as if he must go mad with the ardour of the desire. Many other prisoners had had experience of this condition before him, and its violence and continuity had worn themselves out in their cases, as they did in his. Two nights and a day exhausted it. It came back by fits, but those grew fainter, and returned at lengthening intervals. A desolate calm succeeded, and the middle of the week found him settled down in the despondency of low, slow fever. With Cavaletto and Pancks away, he had no visitors to fear but Mr. and Mrs. Plornish. His anxiety, in reference to that worthy pair, was that they should not come near him. For, in the morbid state of his nerves, he sought to be left alone, and spared the being seen so subdued and weak. He wrote a note to Mrs. Plornish, representing himself as occupied with his affairs, and bound by the necessity of devoting himself to them, to remain for a time even without the pleasant interruption of a sight of her kind face. As to young John, who looked in daily at a certain hour, when the turnkeys were relieved to ask if he could do anything for him, he always made a pretence of being engaged in writing, and to answer cheerfully in the negative. The subject of their only long conversation had never been revived between them. Through all these changes of unhappiness, however, it had never lost its hold on Clennam's mind. The sixth day of the appointed week was a moist, hot, misty day. It seemed as though the prison's poverty and shabbiness and dirt were growing in the sultry atmosphere. With an aching head and a weary heart, Clennam had watched the miserable night out, listening to the fall of rain on the yard pavement, thinking of its softer fall upon the country earth, A blurred circle of yellow haze had risen up in the sky in lieu of sun, and he had watched the patch it put upon his wall, like a bit of prison raggedness. He had heard the gates open, and the badly shod feet that waited outside shuffle in, and the sweeping, and pumping, and moving about begin, which commenced the prison morning. So ill and faint, that he was obliged to rest many times in the process of getting himself washed, he had at length crept to his chair by the open window. In it he sat dozing, while the old woman who arranged his room went through her morning's work. Light of head, with want of sleep, and want of food, his appetite, and even his sense of taste having forsaken him. He had been two or three times conscious in the night of going astray. He had heard fragments of tunes and songs in the warm wind, which he knew had no existence. Now that he began to doze in exhaustion, he heard them again, and voices seemed to address him. And he answered and started. Dozing and dreaming, without the power of reckoning time, so that a minute might have been an hour, and an hour a minute, some abiding impression of a garden stole over him, a garden of flowers, with a damp warm wind gently stirring their scents. It required such a painful effort to lift his head for the purpose of inquiring into this, or inquiring into anything, that the impression appeared to have become quite an old and importunate one, when he looked round. Beside the teacup on his table, he saw then a blooming nosegay, a wonderful handful of the choicest and most lovely flowers. Nothing had ever appeared so beautiful in his sight. He took them up, and inhaled their fragrance, and he held them to his hot head, and he put them down, and opened his parched hands to them, as cold hands are open to receiving the cheering of a fire. It was not until he had delighted in them for some time, that he wondered who had sent them and opened his door to ask the woman who must have put them there, how they had come into her hands. But she was gone, and seemed to have been long gone, for the tea she had left for him on the table was cold. He tried to drink some, but could not bear the odour of it, so he crept back to his chair by the open window, and put the flowers on the little round table of old. When the first faintness consequent on having moved about had left him, he subsided into his former state. One of the night tunes was playing in the wind, when the door of his room seemed to open to a light touch, and, after a moment's pause, a quiet figure seemed to stand there, with a black mantle on it. It seemed to draw the mantle off, and drop it on the ground. And then it seemed to be his little Dorrit, in her old worn dress. It seemed to tremble, and to clasp its hands, and to smile, and to burst into tears. He roused himself, and cried out. And then he saw, in the loving, pitying, sorrowing, dear face, as in a mirror, how changed he was. And she came towards him, and with her hands laid on his breast, to keep him in his chair, and with her knees upon the floor at his feet, and with her lips raised up to kiss him, and with her tears dropping on him as the rain from heaven had dropped upon the flowers, little Dorrit, a living presence, called him by his name. "'Oh! My best friend! Dear Mr. don't let me see you weep unless you weep with pleasure to see me I hope you do your own poor child come back so faithful tender and unspoiled by fortune in the sound of her voice in the light of her eyes in the touch of her hands so angelically comforting and true as he embraced her she said to him they never told me you were ill and drawing an arm softly round his neck laid his head upon her bosom put a hand upon his head, and resting her cheek upon that hand, nursed him as lovingly, and God knows as innocently, as she had nursed her father in that room, when she had been but a baby, needing all the care from others that she took of them. When he could speak, he said, "'Is it possible that you have come to me? And in this dress?' "'I hoped you would like me better in this dress than any other. I have always kept it by me, to remind me though I wanted no reminding I'm not alone you see I brought an old friend with me looking round he saw Maggie in her big cap which had been long abandoned with a basket on her arm as in the bygone days chuckling rapturously it was only yesterday evening that I came to London with my brother I sent round to mrs. Plornish almost as soon as we arrived that I might hear of you and let you know I had come then I heard that you were here did you happen to think of me in the night? I almost believe you must have thought of me a little. I thought of you so anxiously, and it appeared so long to morning. "'I have thought of you.' He hesitated what to call her. She perceived it in an instant. "'You have not spoken to me by my right name yet. You know what my right name always is with you.' "'I have thought of you, little Dorrit every day every hour every minute since i have been here have you have you he saw the bright delight of her face and the flush that kindled in it with a feeling of shame he a broken bankrupt sick dishonored prisoner i was here before the gates were opened but i was afraid to come straight to you i should have done you more harm than good at first for the prison was so familiar and yet so strange and it brought back so many remembrances of my poor father, and of you too, that at first it overpowered me. But we went to Mr. Chivery before we came to the gate, and he brought us in, and got John's room for us—my poor old room, you know—and we waited there a little. I brought the flowers to the door, but you didn't hear me." She looked something more womanly than when she had gone away, and the ripening touch of the Italian sun was visible upon her face but otherwise she was quite unchanged the same deep timid earnestness that he had always seen in her and never without emotion he saw still if it had a new meaning that smote him to the heart the change was in his perception not in her she took off her old bonnet hung it in the old place and noiselessly began with Maggie's help to make his room as fresh and neat as it could be made and to sprinkle it with a pleasant smelling water when that was done The basket, which was filled with grapes and other fruit, was unpacked, and all its contents were quietly put away. When that was done, a moment's whisper dispatched Maggie to dispatch somebody else to fill the basket again, which soon came back replenished with new stores, from which a present provision of cooling drink and jelly, and a prospective supply of roast chicken and wine and water, were the first extracts. These various arrangements completed. She took out her old needle-case, to make him a curtain for his window, and thus, with a quiet reigning in the room, that seemed to diffuse itself through the else noisy prison, he found himself composed in his chair, with little Dorrit working at his side. To see the modest head again bent down over its task, and the nimble fingers busy at their old work, though she was not so absorbed in it, but that her compassionate eyes were often raised to his face, and, when they drooped again, had tears in them. To be so consoled and comforted, and to believe that all the devotion of this great nature was turned to him, in his adversity, to pour out its inexhaustible wealth of goodness upon him, did not steady Clennam's trembling voice or hand, or strengthen him in his weakness. Yet it inspired him with an inward fortitude that rose with his love. And how dearly he loved her now! What words can tell! As they sat side by side in the shadow of the wall, the shadow fell like light upon him. She would not let him speak much, and he lay back in his chair, looking at her. Now and again she would rise and give him the glass that he might drink, or would smooth the resting place of his head, then she would gently resume her seat by him, and bend over her work again. The shadow moved with the sun, but she never moved from his side, except to wait upon him. The sun went down, and she was still there. She had done her work now, and her hand, faltering on the arm of his chair since its last tending of him was hesitating there yet. He laid his hand upon it, and it clasped him with a trembling supplication. "'Dear Mr. Clennam, I must say something to you before I go. I have put it off from hour to hour, but I must say it.' "'I, too, dear little Dorrit, I have put off what I must say.' She nervously moved her hand towards his lips, as if to stop him. Then it dropped, trembling, into its former place. I am not going abroad again. My brother is, but I am not. He was always attached to me, and he is so grateful to me now—so much too grateful. For it is only because I happened to be with him in his illness, that he says I shall be free to stay where I like best, and to do what I like best. He only wishes me to be happy, he says." There was one bright star shining in the sky. She looked up at it, while she spoke as if it were the fervent purpose of her own heart shining above her you will understand I dare say without my telling you that my brother has come home to find my dear father's will and to take possession of his property he says if there is a will he is sure I shall be left rich and if there is none that he will make me so he would have spoken but you put up her trembling hand again and he stopped I have no use for money I have no wish for it. It would be of no value at all to me but for your sake. I could not be rich, and you here. I must always be much worse than poor, with you distressed. Will you let me lend you all I have? Will you let me give it to you? Will you let me show you that I have never forgotten, that I never can forget your protection of me, when this was my home? Dear Mr. Clennam! Make me of all the world the happiest, by saying yes. Make me as happy as I can be in leaving you here, by saying nothing to-night, and letting me go away with the hope that you will think of it kindly, and that for my sake, not for yours, for mine, for nobody's but mine, you will give me the greatest joy I can experience on earth, the joy of knowing that I have been serviceable to you, and that I have paid some little of the great debt of my affection and gratitude. I can't say what I wish to say. I can't visit you here, where I have lived so long. I can't think of you here, where I have seen so much, and be as calm and comforting as I ought. My tears will make their way. I cannot keep them back. But pray, pray, pray! Do not turn from your little Dorrit, now, and your affliction. Pray, pray, pray! I beg you, and implore you, with all my grieving heart. My friend, my dear, take all I have, and make it a blessing to me." The star had shone on her face until now, when her face sank upon his hand and her own. It had grown darker when he raised her in his encircling arm, and softly answered her, "'No, darling little Dorrit, no, my child, I must not hear of such a sacrifice.' liberty and hope would be so dear, bought at such a price, that I could never support their weight, never bear the reproach of possessing them. But with what ardent thankfulness and love I say this, I may call heaven to witness. And yet you will not let me be faithful to you in your affliction. Say, dearest little Dorrit, and yet I will try to be faithful to you. If, in the bygone days, when this was your home, and when this was your dress, I had understood myself—I speak only of myself—better, and had read the secrets of my own breast more distinctly. If through my reserve and self-mistrust I had discerned a light that I see brightly now when it has passed far away, and my weak footsteps can never overtake it—if I had then known— and told you that I loved and honoured you—not as the poor child I used to call you, but as a woman whose true hand would raise me high above myself, and make me a far happier and better man. If I had so used the opportunity, there is no recalling, as I wish I had. Oh! I wish I had! And if something had kept us apart then, when I was moderately thriving, and when you were poor. I might have met your noble offer of your fortune, dearest girl, with other words than these, and still have blushed to touch it. But as it is, I must never touch it—never." She besought him more pathetically and earnestly, with her little supplicatory hand, than she could have done in any words. "'I am disgraced enough, my little Dorrit. I must not descend so low as that, and carry you so dear so generous, so good, down with me—God bless you! God reward you! It is past." He took her in his arms, as if she had been his daughter. Always! So much older, so much rougher, and so much less worthy! Even what I was must be dismissed by both of us, and you must see me only as I am. I put this parting kiss upon your cheek, my child who might have been more near to me, who never could have been more dear, a ruined man, far removed from you, for ever separated from you, whose course is run, while yours is but beginning. I have not the courage to ask to be forgotten by you in my humiliation, but I ask to be remembered only as I am." The bell began to ring, warning visitors to depart. He took her mantle from the wall, and tenderly wrapped it round her. One other word, my little Dorrit, a hard one to me, but it is a necessary one. The time when you and this prison had anything in common has long gone by. Do you understand? Oh! You will never say to me—she cried, weeping bitterly, and holding up her clasped hands in entreaty—that I am not to come back any more. You will surely not desert me so. I would say it, if I could. But I have not the courage, quite, to shut out this dear face, and abandon all hope of its return. But do not come soon. Do not come often. This is now a tainted place, and I well know the taint of it clings to me. You belong to much brighter and better scenes. You are not to look back here, my little Dorrit. You are to look away, to very different and much happier paths. Again. "'God bless you in them. God reward you.' "'Maggie, who had fallen into very low spirits, here cried, "'Oh, get him into hospital. Do get him into hospital, mother. "'He'll never look like hisself again, if he ain't got into hospital. "'And then the little woman, as was always a-spinning at her wheel, "'she can go to the cupboard with the princess, and say, "'What do you keep the chicken there for? "'And then they can take it out, and give it to him.' and then all be happy." The interruption was seasonable, for the bell had nearly rung itself out. Again tenderly wrapping her mantle about her, and taking her on his arm, though but for her visit he was almost too weak to walk, Arthur led little Dorrit downstairs. She was the last visitor to pass out at the lodge, and the gate jarred heavily and hopelessly upon her. With a funeral clang that it sounded into Arthur's heart, his sense of weakness returned. It was a toilsome journey upstairs to his room, and he re-entered its dark, solitary precincts in unutterable misery. When it was almost midnight, and the prison had long been quiet, a cautious creak came up the stairs, and a cautious tap of a key was given at his door. It was young John. He glided in, in his stockings, and held the door closed, while he spoke in a whisper. "'It's against all rules, but I don't mind.' I was determined to come through, and come to you." "'What is the matter?' "'Nothing's the matter, sir. I was waiting in the courtyard for Miss Dorrit when she came out. I thought you'd like some one to see that she was safe.' "'Thank you. Thank you. You took her home, John?' "'I saw her to a hotel—the same that Mr. Dorrit was at. Miss Dorrit walked all the way, and talked to me so kind, it quite knocked me over. Why do you think she walked instead of riding I don't know John to talk about you She said to me John You was always honorable and if you'll promise me that you will take care of him and never let him want for help And comfort when I'm not there my mind will be at rest so far. I promised her and I'll stand by you said John Chivery forever Clennam, much affected stretched out his hand to this honest spirit "'Before I take it,' said John, looking at it, without coming from the door, "'guess what message Miss Dorrit gave me?' Clennam shook his head. "'Tell him,' repeated John, in a distinct, though quavering voice, "'that is, little Dorrit, sent him her and I in love. "'Now it is delivered. "'Have I been honourable, sir?' "'Very, very. "'Will you tell Miss Dorrit?' I've been honourable, sir. I will indeed. There's my hand, sir, said John, and I'll stand by you for ever. After a hearty squeeze, he disappeared with the same cautious creak upon the stair, crept shoeless over the pavement of the yard, and, locking the gates behind him, passed out into the front where he had left his shoes. If the same way had been paved with burning ploughshares, it is not at all improbable that John would have traversed it with the same devotion, for the same purpose. End of Book Two, Chapter 29 Book Two, Chapter 30 of Little Dorrit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens, Book Two, Riches, Chapter Thirty, Closing In. The last day of the appointed week touched the bars of the Marshalsea Gate. Black all night since the gate had clashed upon Little Dorrit, its iron stripes were turned by the early glowing sun into stripes of gold far aslant across the city, over its jumbled roofs, and through the open tracery of its church-towers, struck the long bright rays, bars of the prison of this lower world. Throughout the day, the old house within the gateway remained untroubled by any visitors, but, when the sun was low, three men turned in at the gateway, and made for the dilapidated house. Rigaud was the first, and walked by himself smoking, Mr. Baptist was the second, and jogged close after him, looking at no other object, Mr. Pancks was the third, and carried his hat under his arm for the liberation of his restive hair. The weather being extremely hot, they all came together at the doorsteps. You pair of madmen said Rigaud, facing about, don't go yet. we don't mean to said Mr. Pancks, giving him a dark glance in acknowledgment of his answer. Rigaud knocked loudly. He had charged himself with drink, for the playing out of his game, and was impatient to begin. He had hardly finished one long-resounding knock, when he turned to the knocker again, and began another. That was not yet finished, when Jeremiah Flintwinch opened the door, and they all clanked into the stone hall. Rigaud, thrusting Mr. Flintwinch aside, proceeded straight upstairs. His two attendants followed him. Mr. Flintwinch followed them. And they all came trooping into mrs clennam's quiet room it was in its usual state except that one of the windows was wide open and affery sat on its old-fashioned window seat mending a stocking the usual articles were on the little table the usual deadened fire was in the grate the bed had its usual pall upon it and the mistress of all sat on her black beer-like sofa propped up by her black angular bolster that was like the headsman's block Yet there was a nameless air of preparation in the room, as if it were strung up for an occasion. From what the room derived it, every one of its small variety of objects being in the fixed spot it had occupied for years, no one could have said without looking attentively at its mistress, and that, too, with a previous knowledge of her face. Although her unchanging black dress was in every plait precisely as of old, and her unchanging attitude was rigidly preserved, a very slight additional setting of her features, and contraction of her gloomy forehead, was so powerfully marked, that it marked everything about her. "'Who are these?' she said wonderingly, as the two attendants entered. "'What do these people want here?' "'Who are these, dear Madame, is it?' returned Rigaud. "'Faith, they are friends of your son the prisoner. And what do they want here, is it?' "'Death, Madame, I don't know.' "'you will do well to ask them.' "'You know, you told us at the door not to go yet,' said Pancks. "'And you know you told me at the door you didn't mean to go,' retorted Rigaud. "'In a word, madame, permit me to present two spies of the prisoners—madmen, but spies. If you wish them to remain here during our little conversation, say the word. It is nothing to me.' Why should I wish them to remain here, said Mrs. Clennam? What have I to do with them then, dearest madame said Rigaud, throwing himself into an armchair so heavily that the old room trembled. You will do well to dismiss them. It is your affair; they are not my spies, not my rascals. Hark, you pancks, said Mrs. Clennam, bending her brows upon him angrily. You Casby's clerk. "'Attend to your employer's business and your own. "'Go, and take that other man with you.' "'Thank you, ma'am,' returned Mr. Pancks. "'I'm glad to say, I see no objection to our both retiring. "'We've done all we undertook to do for Mr. Clennam. "'His constant anxiety has been, "'and it grew worse upon him when he became a prisoner, "'that this agreeable gentleman should be brought back here "'to the place from which he slipped away. "'Here he is, brought back. "'And I will say, added mr pancks, to his ill-looking face, that in my opinion the world would be no worse for his slipping out of it altogether. Your opinion is not asked, answered mrs Clennam. Go. I am sorry not to leave you in better company, ma'am, said pancks, and sorry too that mr Clennam can't be present. It's my fault, that is. You mean his own? she returned. No, I mean mine, ma'am, said pancks for it was my misfortune to lead him into a ruinous investment.' Mr. Panks still clung to that word, and never said speculation. "'Though I can prove by figures,' added Mr. Panks, with an anxious countenance, "'that it ought to have been a good investment. I've gone over it since it failed, every day of my life, and it comes out, regarded as a question of figures, triumphant. The present is not a time or place.' Mr. Panks pursued, with a longing glance into his hat, where he kept his calculations, for entering upon the figures. But the figures are not to be disputed. Mr. Clennam ought to have been at this moment in his carriage and pair, and I ought to have been worth from three to five thousand pound. Mr. Pancks put his hair erect with a general aspect of confidence that could hardly have been surpassed if he had had the amount in his pocket. These incontrovertible figures had been the occupation of every moment of his leisure since he had lost his money and were destined to afford him consolation till the end of his days. "'However,' said Mr. Pancks, "'enough of that. outro, oh boy, you have seen the figures, and you know how they come out.' Mr. Baptist, who had not the slightest arithmetical power of compensating himself in this way, nodded with a fine display of bright teeth, at whom Mr. Flintwinch had been looking, and to whom he then said, "'Oh, it's you, is it?' "'I thought I remembered your face, but I wasn't certain till I saw your teeth. "'Ah, yes, to be sure. "'It was this officious refugee,' said Jeremiah to Mrs. Clennam, "'who came knocking at the door on the night when Arthur and Chatterbox were here, "'and who asked me a whole catechism of questions about Mr. Blandois. "'It is true,' Mr. Baptist cheerfully admitted. "'And behold him, Padron.' "'I have found him, consequentimentally.' "'I shouldn't have objected,' returned Mr. Flintwinch, "'to your having broken your neck, consequentimentally.' "'And now,' said Mr. Pancks, whose eye had often stealthily wandered to the window-seat, and the stocking that was being mended there, "'I've only one other word to say before I go. "'If Mr. Clennam was here, but unfortunately, Though he has so far got the better of this fine gentleman as to return him to this place against his will, he is ill and in prison. Ill and in prison, poor fellow! If he was here, said Mr. Pancks, taking one step aside towards the window-seat, and laying his right hand upon the stocking, he would say, "'Affery, tell your dreams.' Mr. Pancks held up his right forefinger between his nose and the stocking, with a ghostly air of warning turned steamed out and towed mr Baptist after him the house-door was heard to close upon them their steps were heard passing over the dull pavement of the echoing courtyard and still nobody had added a word mrs Clennam and Jeremiah had exchanged a look and had then looked and looked still at affery who sat mending the stocking with great assiduity come said mr flintwinch at length screwing himself a curve or two in the direction of the window-seat, and rubbing the palms of his hands on his coat-tails, as if he were preparing them to do something—'Whatever has to be said among us, had better be begun to be said without more loss of time. So, Affery, my woman, take yourself away.' In a moment, Affery had thrown the stocking down, started up, caught hold of the window-sill with her right hand, lodged herself upon the window-seat with her right knee, and was flourishing her left hand, beating expected assailants off. "'No, I won't, Jeremiah. No, I won't. No, I won't. I won't go. I'll stay here. I'll hear all I don't know, and say all I know. I will at last, if I die for it. I I will. I will. I will. I will.' Mr. Flintwinch, stiffening with indignation and amazement, moistened the fingers of one hand at his lips, softly described a circle with them in the palm of the other hand, and continued with a menacing grin to screw himself in the direction of his wife, gasping some remark as he advanced, of which in his choking anger only the words, "'Such a joes," were audible. "'Not a bit nearer, Jeremiah.' cried affery never ceasing to beat the air don't come a bit nearer to me or i'll rouse the neighborhood i'll throw myself out of window i'll scream fire and murder i'll wake the dead stop where you are or i'll make shrieks enough to wake the dead the determined voice of mrs clennam echoed stop jeremiah had stopped already it is closing in flintwinch let her alone "'Do turn against me, after these many years?' "'I do. "'If it's turning against you to hear what I don't know, "'and say what I know, "'I have broke out now, and I can't go back. "'I'm determined to do it. "'I will do it. "'I will. "'I will. "'I will. "'If that's turning against you, "'yes, I turn against both of you two clever ones. "'I told Arthur, when he first come home, to stand up against you. I told him it was no reason, because I was afeard of me life of you, that you should be. All manner of things have been a-going on since then, and I won't be run up by Jeremiah, nor yet I won't be dazed and scared, nor made a party to I don't know what no more. I won't, I won't, I won't. I'll up for Arthur when he has nothing left, and he's ill, and in prison and can't up for himself i will i will i will i will how do you know you heap of confusion asked mrs clennam sternly that in doing what you are doing now you are even serving arthur i don't know nothing rightly about anything said affery and if ever you said a true word in your life it's when you call me a heap of confusion for you two clever ones have done your most to make me such you married me "'whether I liked it or not. "'And you've led me pretty well ever since. "'Such a life of dreaming and frightening "'as never was known. "'And what do you expect me to be "'but a heap of confusion? "'You wanted to make me such. "'I am such. "'But I won't submit no longer. "'No, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't!' She was still beating the air against all comers. After gazing at her in silence, Mrs. Clennam turned to Rigaud you see in here this foolish creature do you object to such a piece of distraction remaining where she is i madame he replied do i that's a question for you i do not she said gloomily there is little left to choose now flintwich it is closing in mr flintwich replied by directing a look of red vengeance at his wife and then, as if to pinion himself from falling upon her, screwed his crossed arms into the breast of his waistcoat, and with his chin very near one of his elbows, stood in a corner, watching Rigaud, in the oddest attitude. Rigaud, for his part, arose from his chair, and seated himself on the table, with his legs dangling. In this easy attitude, he met Mrs. Clennam's set face, with his moustache going up, and his nose coming down. "'Madame, I am a gentleman,' of whom she interrupted in her steady tones,—'I have heard disparagement, in connection with a French jail, and an accusation of murder.' He kissed his hand to her, with his exaggerated gallantry. "'Perfectly, exactly, of a lady, too! What absurdity! How incredible! I had the honour of making a great success, then. I hope to have the honour of making a great success now. I kiss your hands. Madame. I am a gentleman, I was going to observe, who, when he says, I will definitely finish this or that affair, at the present sitting, does definitely finish it. I announce to you that we are arrived at our last sitting, and our little business. You do me the favour to follow, and to comprehend?' She kept her eyes fixed upon him with a frown. "'Yes?' "'Further.' I am a gentleman to whom mere mercenary trade bargains are unknown, but to whom money is always acceptable as the means of pursuing his pleasures. You do me the favour to follow, and to comprehend?' "'Scarcely necessary to ask, one would say, yes.' "'Further, I am a gentleman of the softest and the sweetest disposition, but who, if trifled with, becomes enraged.' "'Noble natures under such circumstances become enraged. "'I possess a noble nature. "'When the lion is awakened, that is to say, when I enrage, "'the satisfaction of my animosity is as acceptable to me as money. "'You always do me the favour to follow and to comprehend?' "'Yes,' she answered, somewhat louder than before. "'Do not let me derange you. "'Pray be tranquil.' i have said we are now arriving at our last sitting allow me to recall the two sittings we have held it is not necessary death madame he burst out it's my fancy besides it clears the way the first sitting was limited i had the honour of making your acquaintance of presenting my letter i am a knight of industry at your service madame but my polished manners had won me so much of success, as a master of languages, among your compatriots, who are as stiff as their own starch is to one another, but are ready to relax to a foreign gentleman of polished manners, and of observing one or two little things—' he glanced around the room, and smiled, about this honourable house, to know which was necessary to assure me, and to convince me that I had the distinguished pleasure—' of making the acquaintance of the lady I sought, I achieved this. I gave my word of honour to our dear Flintwinch, that I would return. I gracefully departed. Her face neither acquiesced nor demurred, the same when he paused and when he spoke. It as yet showed him always the one attentive frown, and the dark revelation before mentioned of her being nerved for the occasion i say gracefully departed because it was graceful to retire without alarming a lady to be morally graceful not less than physically is a part of the character of rigaud blandois it was also politic as leaving you is something overhanging you to expect me again with a little anxiety on a day not named but your slave is politic by heaven madam politic "'Let us return. On the day not named, I have again the honour to render myself at your house. I intimate that I have something to sell, which, if not bought, will compromise madame, whom I highly esteem. I explain myself generally. I demand, I think it was a thousand pounds. Will you correct me?' "'Thus forced to speak,' she replied with constraint, you demanded as much as a thousand pounds. I demand at present, too. Such are the evils of delay. But to return once more, we are not accordant. We differ, on that occasion. I am playful. Playfulness is a part of my amiable character. Playfully, I become as one slain and hidden. For, it may alone be worth half the sum to madame, to be freed from the suspicions that my droll idea awakens. Accident and spies intermix themselves against my playfulness, and spoil the fruit. Perhaps, who knows, only you and Flintwinch. when it is just ripe. Thus, madame, I am here for the last time. Listen, definitely— the last. As he struck his straggling boot-heels against the flap of the table, meeting her frown with an insolent gaze, he began to change his tone for a fierce one. Bah! Stop an instant. Let us advance by steps. Here is my hotel-note to be paid, according to contract. Five minutes hence we may be at Dagger's Points. I'll not leave it till then, or you'll cheat me. Pay it. Count me the money." "'Take it from his hand, and pay it, Flintwinch,' said Mrs. Clennam. He spirited it into Mr. Flintwinch's face, when the old man advanced to take it, and held forth his hand, repeating noisily, "'Pay it! Count it out! Good money!' Jeremiah picked the bill up, looked at the total with a bloodshot eye, took a small canvas bag from his pocket, and told the amount into his hand. Rigor chinked the money, weighed it in his hand threw it up a little way, and caught it, chinked it again. "'The sound of it, to the bold, rigour of is like the taste of fresh meat to the tiger. Say, then, madame, how much?' He turned upon her suddenly, with a menacing gesture of the weighted hand that clenched the money, as if he were going to strike her with it. "'I tell you again, as I told you before, that we are not rich here, as you suppose us to be, and that your demand is excessive.' I have not the present means of complying with such a demand, if I had ever so great an inclination.' "'If,' cried Rigaud, "'hear this lady with her if, will you say that you have not the inclination?' "'I will say what presents itself to me, and not what presents itself to you. Say it, then, as to the inclination. Quick, come to the inclination, and I know what to do.' She was no quicker, and no slower, in her reply. "'It would seem that you have obtained possession of a paper, or of papers, which I assuredly have the inclination to recover.' Rigaud, with a loud laugh, drummed his heels against the table, and chinked his money. "'I think so. I believe you there. The paper might be worth to me a sum of money. I cannot say how much, or how little.' "'What the devil!' he asked savagely, not after a week's grace to consider. "'No. I will not, out of my scanty means, for I tell you again we are poor here, and not rich, I will not offer any price for a power that I do not know the worst and the fullest extent of. This is the third time of your hinting and threatening. You must speak explicitly, or you may go where you will, and do what you will. It is better to be torn to pieces at a spring, than to be a mouse at the caprice of such a cat." He looked at her so hard, of those eyes, too near together, that the sinister sight of each, crossing that of the other, seemed to make the bridge of his hooked nose crooked. After a long survey, he said, with the further setting off of his internal smile, "'You are a bold woman.' "'I am a resolved woman.' "'You always were.' "'What? She always was? Is it not so, my little flintwinch?' Flintwinch?" say nothing to him. It is for him to say, here and now, all he can, or to go hence and do all he can. You know this to be our determination. Leave him to his action on it.' She did not shrink under his evil leer, or avoid it. He turned it upon her again, but she remained steady at the point to which she had fixed herself. He got off the table, placed a chair near the sofa, sat down in it, and leaned an arm upon the sofa close to her own, which he touched with his hand. Her face was ever frowning, attentive, and settled. "'It is your pleasure, then, madame, that I shall relate a morsel of family history in this little family society,' said Brigaud, with the warning play of his lithe fingers on her arm. "'I am something of a doctor. Let me touch your pulse.' She suffered him to take her wrist in his hand. Holding it, he proceeded to say— a history of a strange marriage, and a strange mother, and a revenge, and a suppression. Ay, ay, ay! This pulse is beating curiously. It appears to me that it doubles, while I touch it. Are these the usual changes of your malady, madame?" There was a struggle in her maimed arm, as she twisted it away, but there was none in her face. On his face there was his own smile. I have lived an adventurous life. I am adventurous character. I have known many adventurers, interesting spirits, amiable society. To one of them I owe my knowledge and my proofs. I repeat it, estimable lady, proofs of the ravishing little family history I go to commence. You will be charmed with it. But, bah! I forget. One should name a history. Shall I name it the history of a house, but, bah! again, there are so many houses. Shall I name it the history of this house? Leaning over the sofa, poised on two legs of his chair, and his left elbow, that hand often tapping her arm to beat his words home. His legs crossed, his right hand sometimes arranging his hair, sometimes smoothing his moustache, sometimes striking his nose, always threatening her, whatever it did. Coarse! insolent rapacious cruel and powerful he pursued his narrative at his ease in fine then i name it the history of this house i commence it there live here let us suppose an uncle and nephew the uncle a rigid old gentleman of strong force of character the nephew habitually timid repressed and under constraint Mrs. affery fixedly attentive in the window-seat, biting the rolled-up end of her apron, and trembling from head to foot, here cried out, "'Jeremiah, keep off from me. I've heard in my dreams of Arthur's father and his uncle. He's a-talking of them. It was before my time here, but I've heard in my dreams that Arthur's father was a poor, resolute, frightened chap, who had had everything but his orphan life scared out of him when he was young.' "'and that he had no voice in the choice of his wife, even. "'But his uncle chose her. "'There she sits. "'I heard it in my dreams, "'and you said it to her own self.' "'As Mr. Flintwinch shook his fist at her, "'and as Mrs. Clennam gazed upon her, "'Rigaud kissed his hand to her. "'Perfectly right, dear Madame Flintwinch. "'You have a genius for dreaming.' "'I don't want none of your praises,' returned Avery, I don't want to have nothing at all to say to you. But Jeremiah said they was dreams, and I'll tell him as such." Here she put her apron in her mouth again, as if she were stopping somebody else's mouth—perhaps Jeremiah's—which was chattering with threats, as if he were grimly cold. "'Ah, beloved Madame Flintwinch,' said Rigaud, "'developing all of a sudden—a fine susceptibility and spirituality—is right.' to a marvel?
1: Yes.
0: So runs the history. Monsieur the uncle commands the nephew to marry. Monsieur says to him, in effect, My nephew, I introduce to you a lady of strong force of character, like myself, a resolved lady, a stern lady, a lady who has a will that can break the weak to powder, a lady without "'without love, implacable, revengeful, cold as the stone, but raging as the fire! "'Ah, what fortitude! Ah, what superiority of intellectual strength! "'Truly a proud and noble character, that I describe, in the supposed words of monsieur, the uncle! "'Ha, ha, ha, Death of my soul, I love thee, sweet lady!' Mrs. Clennam's face had changed. There was a remarkable darkness of colour on it, and the brow was more contracted. "'Madame, madame,' said Rigaud, tapping her on the arm, as if his cruel hand were sounding a musical instrument, "'I perceive I interest you. I perceive I awaken your sympathy. Let us go on.' The drooping nose and the ascending moustache had, however, to be hidden for a moment with the white hand, before he could go on. He enjoyed the effect he made so much. The nephew, being, as the lucid Madame Flintwinch has remarked, a poor devil, who has had everything but his orphan life frightened and famished out of him, the nephew abases his head, and makes response. "'My uncle, it is to you to command. Do as you will. Monsieur the uncle does as he will. It is what he always does. The auspicious nuptials take place. The newly married come home to this charming mansion. The lady is received, let us suppose, by Flintwinch. Hey, old intriguer?' Jeremiah, with his eyes upon his mistress, made no reply. Rigaud looked from one to the other. "'struck his ugly nose, and made a clucking with his tongue. "'Soon the lady makes a singular and exciting discovery. "'Thereupon, full of anger, full of jealousy, full of vengeance, "'she forms—see you, madame—a scheme of retribution, "'the weight of which she ingeniously forces her crushed husband "'to bear himself, as well as execute, upon her enemy. "'What superior intelligence!' keep off jeremiah cried the palpitating affery taking her apron from her mouth again but it was one of my dreams that you told her when you quarreled with her one winter evening at dusk there she sits and you looking at her that she oughtn't to have let arthur when he come home suspect his father only that she had always had the strength and the power and that she ought to have stood up more to arthur for his father "'She was in the same dream, where you said to her that she was not—not not something, but I don't know what, for she burst out tremendous, and stopped you. You know the dream as well as I do, when you come downstairs into the kitchen, with a candle in your hand, and itched my apron off me head, when you told me I had been dreaming, when you wouldn't believe the noises.' After this explosion, Afri put her apron into her mouth again always keeping her hand on the window-sill, and her knee on the window-seat, ready to cry out or jump out, if her lord and master approached. Rigaud had not lost a word of this. "'Ha! ha!' he cried, lifting his eyebrows, folding his arms, and leaning back in his chair. "'Assuredly, Madame Flintwin, she's an oracle. How shall we interpret the oracle, you and I, and the old intriguer?" "'He said that you were not—' and you burst out and stopped him. "'What was it you were not? "'What is it you are not? "'Say then, madame.' Under this ferocious banter, she sat breathing harder, and her mouth was disturbed. Her lips quivered and opened in spite of her utmost efforts to keep them still. "'Come then, madame. "'Speak, then. "'Our old intriguer said that you were not.' and you stopped him. He was going to say that you are not what? I know already, but I want a little confidence from you. How then? You are not what? She tried again to repress herself, but broke out vehemently. Not Arthur's mother. Good, said Rigaud, you are amenable. With the set expression of her face all torn away by the explosion of her passion, and with a bursting, from every rent feature, of the smouldering fire so long pent up, she cried out, "'I will tell it myself. I will not hear it from your lips, and with the taint of your wickedness upon it. Since it must be seen, I will have it seen by the light I stood in. Not another word. Hear me.' "'Unless you are a more obstinate and more persisting woman than even I know you to be,' Mr. Flintwinch interposed, "'you had better leave Mr. Rigaud, Mr. Blandoir, Mr. Beelzebub, to tell it in his own way. What does it signify when he knows all about it?' "'He does not know all about it.' "'He knows all he cares about it,' Mr. Flintwinch testily urged. "'He does not know me.' "'What do you suppose he cares for you, you conceited woman?' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'I tell you, Flintwinch, I will speak. I tell you when it has come to this, I will tell it with my own lips, and will express myself throughout it. What! have I suffered nothing in this room? No deprivation, no imprisonment, that I should condescend at last to contemplate myself in such a glass as that? Can you see him? Can you hear him? if your wife were a hundred times the ingrate that she is, and if I were a thousand times more hopeless than I am of inducing her to be silent if this man is silenced, I would tell it myself before I would bear the torment of the hearing it from him." Rigaud pushed his chair a little back, pushed his legs out straight before him, and sat with his arms folded over against her. "'You do not know what it is,' she went on addressing him, "'to be brought up strictly and straightly. I was so brought up. Mine was no light youth of sinful gaiety and pleasure. Mine were days of wholesome repression, punishment, and fear. The corruption of our hearts, the evil of our ways, the curse that is upon us, the terrors that surround us, these were the themes of my childhood. They formed my character, and filled me with an abhorrence of evil doers. When old Mr. Gilbert Clennam proposed his orphan nephew to my father for my husband, my father impressed upon me that his bringing-up had been, like mine, one of severe restraint. He told me that besides the discipline his spirit had undergone, he had lived in a starved house, where rioting and gaiety were unknown, and where every day was a day of toil and trial, like the last. He told me that he had been a man in years, long before his uncle had acknowledged him as one, and that from his school-days to that hour, his uncle's roof had been a sanctuary to him, from the contagion of the irreligious and dissolute, when, within a 12 of our marriage, I found my husband, at that time when my father spoke of him, to have sinned against the Lord, and outraged me by holding a guilty creature in my place. Was I to doubt that it had been appointed to me to make the discovery, and that it was appointed to me to lay the hand of punishment upon that creature of perdition? Was I to dismiss in a moment, not my own wrongs? What was I? but all the rejection of sin, and all the war against it, in which I had been bred." She laid her wrathful hand upon the watch on the table. "'No. Do not forget. The initials of those words are within here now, and were within here then. I was appointed to find the old letter that referred to them, and that told me what they meant, and whose work they were, and why they were worked, lying with this watch in his secret drawer. But for that appointment there would have been no discovery. Do not forget!" It spoke to me like a voice from an angry cloud,—'Do not forget the deadly sin! Do not forget the appointed discovery! Do not forget the appointed suffering! I did not forget! Was it my own wrong I remembered? Mine? I was but a servant and a minister! What power could I have over them? But that they were bound in the bonds of their sin, and delivered to me! More than 40 years had passed over the grey head of this determined woman, since the time she recalled. More than 40 years of strife and struggle, with the whisper that, by whatever name she called her vindictive pride and rage, nothing through all eternity could change their nature. Yet, gone those more than 40 years, and come to this nemesis, now looking her in the face, she still abided by her old impiety, still reversed the order of creation and breathed her own breath into a clay image of her creator verily verily travellers have seen many monstrous idols in many countries but no human eyes have ever seen more daring gross and shocking images of the divine nature than we creatures of the dust make in our own likenesses of our own bad passions when i forced him to give her up to me by her name and place of abode she went on in her torrent of indignation and defence When I accused her, and she fell hiding her face at my feet, was it my injury that I asserted? Were they my reproaches that I poured upon her? Those who were appointed of old to go to wicked kings and accuse them, were they not ministers and servants? And had not I, unworthy and far removed from them, sinned to denounce? When she pleaded to me her youth, and his wretched and hard life, that was her phrase for the virtuous training he had belied— and the desecrated ceremony of marriage there had secretly been between them, and the terrors of want and shame that had overwhelmed them both when I was first appointed to be the instrument of their punishment, and the love—for she said the word to me, down at my feet, in which she had abandoned him, and left him to me—was it my enemy that became my footstool? Were they the words of my wrath that made her shrink and quiver? Not unto me the strength be ascribed, not unto me the ringing of the expiation. Many years had come and gone, since she had had the free use, even of her fingers. But it was noticeable, that she had already, more than once, struck her clenched hand vigorously upon the table, and that when she said these words, she raised her whole arm in the air, as though it had been a common action with her. And what was the repentance that was extorted from the hardness of her heart, and the blackness of her depravity? Aye, vindictive and implacable? It may be so to such as you who know no righteousness, and no appointment, except Satan's? Laugh, but I will be known as I know myself, and as Flintwinch knows me, though it is only to you and this half-witted woman. "'Add to yourself, madame,' said Rigaud, "'I have my little suspicions that madame is rather solicitous to be justified to herself.' "'It is false, it is not so. I have no need to be.' she said with great energy and anger. "'Truly?' retorted Rigaud. "'Ha! "'I ask, what was the penitence in works that was demanded of her? "'You have a child, I have none. "'You love that child. "'Give him to me. "'He shall believe himself to be my son, "'and he shall be believed by every one to be my son. "'To save you from exposure, his father shall swear "'never to see or communicate with you more.' equally to save him from being stripped by his uncle, and to save your child from being a beggar, you shall swear never to see or communicate with either of them more. That done, and your present means, derived from my husband, renounced. I charge myself with your support. You may, with your place of retreat unknown, then leave, if you please, uncontradicted by me, the lie that when you passed out of all knowledge but mine, you merited a good name." That was all. She had to sacrifice her sinful and shameful affections no more. She was then free to bear her load of guilt in secret, and to break her heart in secret, and through such present misery, light enough for her, I think, to purchase her redemption from endless misery, if she could. If in this I punished her here, did I not open to her a way hereafter? If she knew herself to be surrounded by insatiable vengeance, and unquenchable fires, were they mine? If I threatened her, then and afterwards, with the terrors that encompassed her, did I hold them in my right hand?" She turned the watch upon the table, and opened it, and, with an unsoftening face, looked at the worked letters within. They did not forget. It is appointed against such offences that the offenders shall not be able to forget. If the presence of Arthur was a daily reproach to his father, and if the absence of Arthur was a daily agony to his mother, that was the just dispensation of Jehovah. As well might it be charged upon me, that the stings of an awakened conscience drove her mad, and that it was the will of the disposer of all things, that she should live so many years. I devoted myself to reclaim the otherwise predestined and lost boy, to give him the reputation of an honest origin, to bring him up in fear and trembling, and in a life of practical contrition for the sins that were heavy on his head before his entrance into this condemned world. Was that a cruelty? Was I, too, not visited with consequences of the original offence in which I had no complicity? Arthur's father and I lived no further apart, with half the globe between us, than when we were together in this house. He died, and sent this watch back to me, with its do not forget. I do not forget, though I do not read it as he did." I read in it that I was appointed to do these things. I have so read these three letters, since I have had them lying on this table, and I did so read them, with equal distinctness, when they were thousands of miles away. As she took the watch-case in her hand, with that new freedom in the use of her hand, of which she showed no consciousness whatever, bending her eye upon it, as if she were defying it to move her, Rigaud cried with a loud and contemptuous snapping of his fingers, "'Come, madame! time runs out. Come, lady of piety, it must be. You can tell nothing I don't know. Come to the money stolen, or I will—death of my soul. I have had enough of your other jargon. Come straight to the stolen money." "'Wretch, that you are,' she answered, and now her hands clasped her head. "'Through what fatal error of Flintwinch's? through what incompleteness on his part who was the only other person helping in these things entrusted with them through whose and what bringing together of the ashes of a burnt paper you have become possessed of that codicil i know no more than how you acquired the rest of your power here and yet Interrupted Rigaud. It is my odd fortune to have by me, in a convenient place that I know of, that same short little addition to the will of Monsieur Gilbert Clennam, written by a lady and witnessed by the same lady and our old intriguer. Uh, ah, va, old intriguer, crooked little puppet, Madame. Let us go on. Time presses. You or I to finish. I she answered with increased determination, if it were possible. I, because I will not endure to be shown myself, and have myself shown to any one with your horrible distortion upon me, you, with your practices of infamous foreign prisons and galleys, would make it the money that impelled me. It was not the money. Bah! 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 I repudiate, for the moment, my politeness, and say, lies, lies, lies you no use to press the deed and kept the money not for the money's sake wretch she made a struggle as if she were starting up even as if in her vehemence she had almost risen on her disabled feet if gilbert clennam reduced to imbecility at the point of death and labouring under the delusion of some imaginary relenting towards a girl of whom he had heard that his nephew had once had a fancy for her which he had crushed out of him and that she afterwards drooped away into melancholy and withdrawal from all who knew her if in that state of weakness he dictated to me whose life she had darkened with her sin and who had been appointed to know her wickedness from her own hand and her own lips a bequest meant as a recompense to her for supposed unmerited suffering was there no difference between my spurning that injustice and coveting mere money a thing which you and your comrades in the prisons may steal from any one time presses, madame take care if this house was blazing from the roof to the ground, she returned, I would stay in it to justify myself against my righteous motives being classed with those of stabbers and thieves. Rigaud snapped his fingers tauntingly in her face. One thousand guineas to the little beauty you slowly hunted to death, one thousand guineas to the youngest daughter her patron might have at fifty, or if he had none brother's youngest daughter on her coming of age as the remembrance his disinterestedness made like best of his protection of a friendless young orphan girl two thousand guineas what you will never come to the money that patron she was vehemently proceeding when he checked her names call him mr frederick dorrit no more evasions. That, Frederick Dorrit, was the beginning of it all. If he had not been a player of music, and had not kept, in those days of his youth and prosperity, an idle house where singers and players and such like, children of evil, turned their backs on the light, and their faces to the darkness, she might have remained in her lowly station, and might not have been raised out of it to be cast down. But no, Satan entered into that Frederick Dorrit and counselled him that he was a man of innocent and laudable tastes, who did kind actions, and that he was a poor girl with a voice for singing music with. Then he is to have her taught. Then Arthur's father, who has all along been secretly pining in the ways of virtuous ruggedness for those accursed snares which are called the arts, becomes acquainted with her. And so, a graceless orphan, training to be a singing girl, carries it, by that Frederick Dorrit's agency, against me and I am humbled and deceived. "'Not I, that is to say,' she added quickly as colour flushed into her face, "'a greater than I. What am I?' Jeremiah Flintwinch, who had been gradually screwing himself towards her, and who was now very near her elbow without her knowing it, made a specially wry face of objection when she said these words, and, moreover, twitched his gaiters, as if such pretensions were equivalent to little barbs in his legs. "'Lastly?' she continued, for I am at the end of these things, and I will say no more of them, and you shall say no more of them, and all that remains will be to determine whether the knowledge of them can be kept among us, who are here present. Lastly, when I suppressed that paper with the knowledge of Arthur's father—' mad not with his consent, you know,' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'Who said with his consent?' She started to find Jeremiah so near her and drew back her head, looking at him with some rising distrust. "'You were often enough between us, when he would have had me produce it, and I would not, to have contradicted me if I had said, with his consent. I say, when I suppressed that paper, I made no effort to destroy it, but kept it by me, here in this house, many years. The rest of the Gilbert property being left to Arthur's father, I could at any time, without unsettling more than the two sums, have made a pretence of finding it. But, besides that, I must have supported such pretense by a direct falsehood, a great responsibility. I have seen no new reason, in all the time I have been tried here, to bring it to light. It was a reward of sin, the wrong result of a delusion. I did what I was appointed to do, and I have undergone within these four walls what I was appointed to undergo. When the paper was at last destroyed, as I thought, in my presence she had long been dead and her patron, Frederick Dorrit, had long been deservedly ruined and imbecile. He had no daughter. I had found the niece before then, and what I did for her, was better for her far than the money of which she would have had no good. She added, after a moment, as though she addressed the watch, she herself was innocent, and I might not have forgotten to relinquish it to her at my death, and sat looking at it. "'Shall I require something to you worthy, madame?' said Rigaud. "'The little paper was in this house, on the night when our friend, the prisoner, jail comrade of my soul, came home from foreign countries. Shall I recall yet something more to you? The little singing-bird that never was fledged, was long kept in a cage by a guardian of your appointing, well enough known to our old intriguer here. Shall we coax our old intriguer to tell us when he saw him last?' "'I'll tell you,' cried Affery, unstopping her mouth, "'I dreamed it. First of all, my dreams. Jeremiah, if you come and eye me now, i scream, to be heard at St. Paul's. The person as this man has spoken of was Jeremiah's own twin brother, and he was here in the dead of the night, on the night when Arthur come home, and Jeremiah with his own hands give him this paper, along with, "'I don't know what more.' and he took it away in an iron-box. Help! Murder! Save me from Jeremiah! Mr. Flintwinch had made a run at her, but Rigaud had caught him in his arms midway. After a moment's wrestle with him, Flintwinch gave up, and put his hands in his pockets. "'What?' cried Rigaud, rallying him as he poked and jerked him back with his elbows. "'A lady!' With such a genius for dreaming, <laughs> why she'll be a fortune to you as an exhibition, or that she dreams comes true. <laughs> You're so like him, little Flintwinch, so like him as I knew him when I first spoke English for him to the host in the cabaret of the three billiard tables in the little street of the high roofs by the wharf at Antwerp ah but he was a brave boy to drink ah but he was a brave boy to smoke ah but he lived in a sweet bachelor apartment furnished on the fifth floor above the wood and charcoal merchants and the dressmakers and the chairmakers and the make of tubs where i knew him too and were with his cognac and tobacco he had twelve sleeps a day and one fit "'until he had a fit too much, and ascended to the (laughs) skies. "'What does it matter how I took possession of the papers in his iron box? "'Perhaps he confided it to my hands for you. "'Perhaps it was locked, and my curiosity was piqued. "'Perhaps I suppressed it. (laughs) "'What does it matter so that I have it safe? "'We are not particular here, eh, Flintwinch? "'We are not particular here?' "'Is it not so, madame?' Retiring before him, with vicious counter-jerks of his own elbows, Mr. Flintwinch had got back into his corner, where he now stood with his hands in his pockets, taking breath, and returning Mrs. Clennam's stare. "'Ha! Ah, ah, ha! Ah, but what's this?' cried Rigaud. "'It appears as if—' "'You don't know? "'One the other? "'Permit me, madame Clennam, who suppresses, to present—' "'Monsieur Flintwinch grew intrigues.' Mr. Flintwinch, unpocketing one of his hands to scrape his jaw, advanced a step or so in that attitude, still returning Mrs. Clennam's look, and thus addressed her. "'Now, I know what you mean by opening your eyes so wide at me, but you needn't take the trouble, because I don't care for it. I've been telling you for how many years that you're one of the most opinionated and obstinate of women. That's what you are.' You call yourself humble and sinful, but you are the most bumptious of your sex. That's what you are. I've told you over and over again, when we have had a tiff, that you wanted to make everything go down before you, but I wouldn't go down before you, that you wanted to swallow up everybody alive, but I wouldn't be swallowed up alive. Why didn't you destroy the paper when you first laid hands upon it?' "'I advised you to, but no, it's not your way to take advice.' you must keep it forsooth perhaps you carry it out at some other time forsooth as if i didn't know better than that i think i see your pride carrying it out with a chance of being suspected of having kept it by you but that's the way you cheat yourself just as you cheat yourself into making out that you didn't do all this business because you were a rigorous woman all slight and spite and power and unforgiveness but because you were a servant and a minister were appointed to do it. Who are you, that you should be appointed to do it? That may be your religion, but it's my gummin'. And to tell you all the truth, while I'm about it," said Mr. Flintwinch, crossing his arms, and becoming the express image of irascible doggedness,—'I have been rasped—rasped, these forty years, by your taking such high ground, even with me, who knows better—the effect of it being coolly to put me on low ground. I admire you very much. You're a woman of strong head and great talent, but the strongest head and the greatest talent can't rasp a man of forty years without making him sore, so I don't care for your present eyes. Now, I'm coming to the paper, and mark what I say. You put it away somewhere, and you kept your own counsel where? You're an active woman at that time, and if you want to get that paper, you can get it. But mark— "'There comes a time when you are stuck into what you are now, "'and then if you want to get that paper, you can't get it. "'So it lies, long years, in its hiding-place. "'At last, when we are expecting Arthur home every day, "'and when any day may bring him home, "'and it's impossible to say what rummaging he may make about the house, "'I recommend you five thousand times, if you can't get at it, "'to let me get at it, that it may be put in the fire. "'But no.' "'No one but you knows where it is, and that's power. "'And call yourself whatever humble names you will, "'I call you a female Lucifer, in appetite for power. "'On a Sunday night, Arthur comes home. "'He's not been in this room ten minutes, "'when he speaks of his father's watch. "'You know very well that the do not forget, "'at the time when his father sent that watch to you, "'could only mean the rest of the story being then all dead and over. "'Do not forget.' the suppression. Make restitution. Arthur's ways have frightened you a bit, and the paper shall be burnt after all. So before that jumping jade and Jezebel—Mr. Flintwinch grinned at his wife—has got you into bed, you at last tell me where you've put the paper—among the old ledgers in the cellars, where Arthur himself went prowling the very next morning. But it's not to be burnt on a Sunday night, no. You are strict, you are. We must wait after twelve o'clock, and get into Monday. Now, all this is a swallowing of me up alive that rasps me, so, feeling a little out of temper, and not being as strict as yourself, I take a look at the document before twelve o'clock, to refresh my memory as to its appearance, fold up one of the many yellow old papers in the cellars like it, and afterwards, when we have got into Monday morning, and I have by the light of your lamp, to walk from you, lying on that bed to this grate, make a little exchange, like the conjurer, and burn accordingly. My brother, Ephraim, the lunatic keeper—I wish he had had himself to keep in a straight waistcoat—had had had many jobs since the close of the long job he got from you, but had not done well. His wife died—not that that was much—mine might have died instead, and welcome. He speculated unsuccessfully in lunatics. He got into difficulty about over-roasting a patient to bring him to reason, and he got into debt. He was going out of the way on what he had been able to scrape up, and a trifle from me. He was here that early Monday morning, waiting for the tide. In short, he was going to Antwerp, where, I am afraid to be shocked at my saying, and be damned to him. He made the acquaintance of this gentleman. He had come a long way, and, I thought then, was only sleepy but, I suppose now, was drunk. When Arthur's mother had been under the care of him and his wife, she had been always writing, incessantly writing, mostly letters of confession to you, and prayers for forgiveness. My brother had handed from time to time lots of these sheets to me. I thought I might as well keep them to myself, as have them swallowed up alive, too. So I kept them in a box, looking over them when I felt in the humour. Convinced that it was advisable to get the paper out of the place, with Arthur coming about it, I put it into this same box, and I locked the whole up with two locks, and I trusted it to my brother to take away and keep, till I should write about it. I did write about it, and never got an answer. I didn't know what to make of it, till this gentleman favoured us with his first visit. Of course, I began to suspect how it was, then." and I don't want his word for it now to understand how he gets his knowledge from my papers, and your paper, and my brother's cognac and tobacco talk. I wish he'd had to gag himself. Now, I've only one thing more to say, you hammer-headed woman, and that is that I haven't altogether made up my mind whether I might, or might not, have ever given you any trouble about the codicil. I think not." and that i should have been quite satisfied with knowing i had got the better of you and that i held the power over you in the present state of circumstances i have no more explanation to give you till this time to-morrow night so you may as well said mr flintwinch terminating his oration with a screw keep your eyes open at somebody else for it's no use keeping them open at me she slowly withdrew them when he had ceased and dropped her forehead on her hand Her other hand pressed hard upon the table, and again the curious stir was observable in her, as if she were going to rise. "'This box can never bring elsewhere the price it will bring here. This knowledge can never be of the same profit to you, sold to any other person as sold to me. But I have not the present means of raising the sum you have demanded. I have not prospered. What will you take now, and what at another time, and how am I to be assured of your silence?' "'My angel!' said Rigaud. "'I have said what I will take, and time presses. Before coming here, I placed copies of the most important of these papers, in another hand. Put off the time till the Marshal gate shall be shut for the night, and it will be too late to treat. The prisoner will have read them.' She put her two hands to her head again, uttered a loud exclamation, and started to her feet. She staggered for a moment, as if she would have fallen, then stood firm. "'Say what you mean! Say what you mean, man!' Before her ghostly figure, so long unused to its erect attitude, and so stiffened in it, Rigaud fell back and dropped his voice. It was, to all the three, almost as if a dead woman had risen. "'Miss Dorit,' answered Rigaud, "'The little niece of Monsieur Frédéric, whom I have known across the water, is attached to the prisoner. Miss Dorit, little niece of Monsieur Frédéric, watches at this moment over the prisoner who is ill. For her, I with my own hands left a packet at the prison, on my way here, with a letter of instructions. For his sake! She will do anything for his sake.' to keep it without breaking the seal, in case of its being reclaimed before the hour of shutting up to-night, if it should not be reclaimed before the ringing of the prison bell, to give it to him, and it encloses his second copy for herself, which he must give to her. Wards, I don't trust myself among you, now we have got so far without giving my secret a second life, and as to its not bringing me elsewhere, the price it will bring here." "'Say then, madame, have you limited and settled the price the little niece will give, for his sake, to hush it up? Once more, I say, time presses, the packet not reclaimed, before the ringing of the bell to-night, you cannot buy. I sell, then, to the little girl.' Once more the stir and struggle in her, and she ran to a closet, tore the door open, took down a hood or shawl, and wrapped it over her head. Affery, who had been watching her in terror, darted to her in the middle of the room, caught hold of her dress, and went on her knees to her. "'Oh, don't! 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 What are you doing? Where are you going? You're a fearful woman, but I don't bear you no ill will. I can do poor Arthur no good now, that I see. And you needn't be afraid of me. I'll keep your secret. Don't go out. You'll fall dead in the street. Only promise me that.' "'If it's a poor thing that's kept here secretly, you let me take charge of her "'and be her nurse. "'Only promise me that, and never be afraid of me.' Mrs. Clennam stood still for an instant, at the height of her rapid haste, saying in stern amazement, "'Kept here. "'She has been dead a score of years or more. "'Ask Flintwinch. ask him. "'They can tell you that she died when Arthur went abroad.' "'So much the worse.' said affery with a shiver for she haunts the house then who else rustles about it making signals by dropping dust so softly who else comes and goes and marks the walls with long crooked touches when we are all abed who else holds the door sometimes but don't go out don't go out mistress you'll die in the street her mistress only disengaged her dress from the beseeching hands said to rigore wait here till I come back,' and ran out of the room. They saw her, from the window, run wildly through the courtyard, and out of the gateway. For a few moments they stood motionless. Affrey was the first to move, and she, wringing her hands, pursued her mistress. Next, Jeremiah Flintwinch, slowly backing to the door, with one hand in a pocket, and the other rubbing his chin, twisted himself out in his reticent way, speechlessly. Rigaud, left alone, composed himself upon the window-seat of the open window, in the old Marseilles gaol attitude. He laid his cigarettes and fire-box ready to his hand, and fell to smoking. "'Phew! Almost as dull as the infernal old gaol! Warmer, but almost as dismal! Wait till she comes back? Yes, certainly. But where is she gone, and how long will she be gone? No matter!' "'Rigaud, Lannier, Blandois, my amiable subject, you will get your money, you will enrich yourself, you have lived a gentleman, you will die a gentleman, you triumph, my little boy, but it is your character to triumph. In the hour of his triumph, his moustache went up, and his nose came down, as he ogled a great beam over his head, with particular satisfaction. End of Book Two, Chapter 30 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.